But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. Uh, hold your spot there. Uh, we're going to go there first. I'm going to give you kind of like the road map for this morning's message. We're going to go to 2 Peter 2. Going to jump into the book of Genesis and then finish with Ephesians chapter 2. So we're going to be jumping from text to text a little bit this morning, but I hope in the time that I have with you that uh, the direction that we go together will be fruitful and profitable as we discuss and look at a particular character in the Bible this morning. Now, I don't know about you, but um, I often find of myself, as I'm reading the Bible, more so as I'm studying the characters, the, the men and the women in the pages of Scripture, I often find myself classifying them or mentally putting them into one of two boxes. Uh, I have a box for those whom I consider righteous. And so as I read through the pages of Scripture and look at characters, I, I consider some of these men and women to be righteous individuals. And what I mean by righteous is um, holy, uh, a pursuit of the things of God, following after the Lord in ways that are obedient to his word and to the commands that he gives. So, so for example, if I were to ask you about some particular characters in the Bible, for example, Daniel. Uh, if you know the story of Daniel, if you know that the outcome of Daniel's life as he goes through uh, his life, if I were to ask you about Daniel, you probably would with me classify him as a righteous man, a, a righteous individual. If I were to ask you about Esther, if I were to ask you of Ruth, Peter, Paul, imperfect people, yes, but by and large, if you know their lives, you would classify them, if you were like me, in the box of a righteous individual. And on the flip side, there are those who fit into a second box in my mind. There are those, as I read the pages of Scripture, that I would look at and say, these are unrighteous. Uh, they, they, have, they, they have no love for the things of God. They have no desire to follow in his commandments. And maybe names like Jezebel, uh, Pharaoh, as we look through the pages in the book of Exodus, um, Judas, some of, some of these names, again, complex characters in their own ways, but by and large, if we were to have a conversation about them, I think that as we look at their lives in Scripture, we would classify those individuals as unrighteous. And, and as we look at righteous individuals and unrighteous individuals, there are certainly lessons that we can learn from their lives. But then there are characters in the Bible that, if I were to be frank with you, are very complex really hard to categorize cleanly. Not so cut and dry their lives. Samson, Jephthah, both of whom are found in Hebrews chapter 11, but if you read the lives that they lived in the Old Testament, you'd wonder how did they end up there? And in this particular character today, I, I, I would contend to you this morning, I'll present to you this morning, that the character that we're going to look at this morning is for me the most complex character in the pages of scripture for me. We're going to look this morning at the life of Lot. Lot, L-O-T, Lot. And if you are taking notes as we consider the life of Lot, I I've titled this message, this sermon, Corrosion. Corrosion. So if you are taking notes, that is the title, Corrosion, Considering the Life of Lot. A man whose life was not so neat, not so cut and dry. 
When we think of corrosion, or when I, when I present that word to you, here, here's the definition that I, that I like to use when I consider that word. Uh, corrosion is a, a process of slow deterioration by being eaten, worn away. So, so something that is corroded is corroded over a long period of time. Corrosion does not happen instantaneously. It is not an overnight phenomenon. It is a process. It is a long process over a period of time. Uh, Ashley and I, about a year ago, just over a year ago, we bought a house. And in the backyard of our house, uh, there's a shed where you would put lawnmower equipment, uh, landscape, landscaping equipment. And on the backside of this shed in our backyard, there's a bicycle. There's a bicycle. The previous owners or the previous owners before the previous owners owned that bicycle and left it outside. Now, if you're familiar with, with bicycles and with metal that stays outside and experiences the elements of nature, you're, you're probably familiar with this, this reality of things that rust, things that corrode. It, this bicycle, I can tell it's a bicycle. It looks like a bicycle. But over a period of time, it has been left outside of this shed and, and the rains of Lynchburg, Virginia, the snows of Lynchburg, Virginia, the sun in the middle of the summer that has been beating down on this bicycle, over time, it has corroded. It has rusted. And so it's a bicycle, but is in effect useless for what it was made to do. As we consider the life of Lot, let me present to you a life that is very corroded, made for what God had for him to do, and yet a life that just lingered and loitered and in effect became corroded. The life of Lot, we are, like I said, in 2 Peter chapter 2. Let us consider this chapter, and I want us to turn here first because we're actually going to see the position of Lot before God, his state before God. Uh, a little bit of context, Second Peter chapter 2, Peter is dealing here with the early church regarding false prophets, false teachers that are arising within the church. Uh, but Peter is making a point, and you would see that point in verse 9 of chapter 2 in Second Peter, that the Lord knows how to rescue his people, the godly, from the wicked. The godly from trials, the godly from unrighteousness, that the Lord knows how to deliver his people. But leading up to that point, Peter uses a few different examples. And for our particular study this morning, I want to show you in verse 7 one of these examples that he uses. He uses an if-then statement here. And the example that he uses in verse 7 is Lot. And consider, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what Peter penned about Lot here. He says this, If he, he being God rescued, here's this word, righteous Lot. Lot, who was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them, them being the Sodomites, day after day he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. If God would deliver this man, then, Peter concludes, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Again, for, for sake of our study this morning, I want us to consider the words that Peter uses here in regards to this man, Lot. Specifically, he calls him a righteous 
man. Three times that word righteous is used here. This, this word righteous as right before God in a position of good standing before the Lord, declared by God to be righteous. We're told here of Lot in this particular passage of Scripture that, that Lot was a man who was greatly distressed by the things that he saw. He was, the, the text says, tormented in soul by the things that he saw and heard in this city called Sodom. That, that the things that were happening within this city vexed him, grieved him, pained him. Lot was not a man apathetic about the things of sin. Lot was not a man lukewarm about sin, at least according to this particular text. We see here a reality about Lot. And yet, as we turn to the book of Genesis, we're going to see what looks like a very different story. I'm reminded J.C. Ryle, um, one, of the, one of the writers that I enjoy reading quite a bit, he, he says this, and I find this to be very helpful as we consider a lot this morning, that a, a true Christian, a true Christian may have many a blemish, many a defect, many an infirmity, and yet be a true Christian nevertheless. As we consider Lot this morning, a man who was righteous before God, let us look at a man's life who, though he was righteous before God, lived a corroded life and the legacy that was left. If you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Let us actually look at the pages of Scripture, the life that he lived, keeping in mind what Peter has to say about Lot as a righteous man. Let us look, starting in Genesis chapter 12. You're, you're familiar, I'm sure, most of you with this, this chapter, because this is the chapter in which God calls Abram, later to be named Abraham. God calls Abram here to, to leave. To, to leave behind what he knows, to, to leave behind his land, to leave behind his families, to leave behind his comforts, and to travel to a land that he is going to show them, to, um, a man that is called to step out on faith. And, and Abram is commended for his faith as he obeys the Lord here. But I want us to consider who also went with Abram this morning. Look with me in verse 4. Abram went... As the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. We're told in verse 5, Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, or his nephew. So here you have an uncle-nephew relationship and all their possessions that they had. So I would look at Genesis chapter 12 as we look at Lot this morning, and I would call this a good start. And here's, here's what I mean by that. A, a good start in this sense. We commend, and rightfully so, we commend Abram for a step of obedience here, a, a, a life here marked by faith. But I would also contend this morning that what we're seeing is a nephew, in this case, a man Lot, who also left by faith. Lot also, as his uncle did, left behind that land that he knew. He left behind those comforts that he had. And he, in an endorsement of the mission of his uncle that the uncle was called to, follows his uncle, follows after him, walks with him. And through the, the, the narrative of Genesis chapter 12, if you were to look at verse 10 of Genesis chapter 12, we're told that they land in the land of Canaan. 
And then there's a famine in this land. There, there's, a, there's a scarcity of food. And they go down to Egypt. Abram, his wife. And if you look at Genesis chapter 13, verse 1, we're told they come up, up out of the land of Egypt and Lot is with him. So, so what this means is this. Genesis chapter 12, I told you, this is a good start for Lot. He leaves behind what he knows, follows his uncle into this foreign land called Canaan. Famine hits this family. And here is this nephew following with his uncle down to the land of Egypt. And in Genesis chapter 13, verse 1, comes up with his uncle out of the land of Egypt back into the Negeb, the text says. So, so what we're seeing here is a man's lot, lot, a man's life who is characterized by faithfulness, at least at the outset. And then we get to chapter 13. And, and if we were to mark Lot's life, I would call this a very serious turning point in his life. Whereas chapter 12 is considered, I would consider it a good start, here we begin to see in chapter 13, compromise. I would call this the beginning of compromise in the life of Lot. Look in Genesis chapter 13 with me, verse 2. We're told, now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Jump to verse 5. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And it only is exasperated by this reality that there were also Canaanites and Perizzites dwelling in, in this land. So, so here's what's happening. Here's what's happening. Genesis chapter 13 verses 2 and 5 tells us that Abram was very rich. Abram had much material possession. The Lord has blessed him in that way. Lot has also been blessed with much material possession. They have much livestock, many herds, so much between uncle and nephew that the land cannot support both of them. And, and strife begins to develop, not between uncle and nephew. There's no direct conflict or quarrel between them, but between their employees, the, the herdsmen of the uncle, Abram, the herdsmen of the nephew, Lot. They now begin to quarrel. And then we're told in verse 8, the uncle, Abram, approaches Lot and says to him, let there be no strife between you and I, between your herdsmen and mine. The reason why is because we are kinsmen. We are family. So here you see a person of peace, Abram, approaching his nephew and saying, let there be no quarrel between us. He says, it's not the whole land before you, verse 9. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, I will go to the left. A, a very generous offer. Uh, historically, traditionally, the eldest, in this case the uncle, would have had first dibs on where he would go. 
And yet here is this uncle relenting and sacrificing by saying, nephew, you go first wherever it is you want to go, wherever it is that you think will be best for you, and I'll go a different direction so that you can prosper and I can prosper. And then verse 10. Lot, hearing this from his uncle, then lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the Garden of the Lord, referencing the Garden of Eden, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself, verse 11, all the Jordan Valley, and he journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. And this is significant because we're told in verse 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Why this is so significant in the life of Lot is because this is the beginning of a compromised state. And what I mean by that is this. Text tells us in verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes. He's been giving a proposition by his uncle. He lifted up his eyes and he looked to see where would be the best direction for me to go so that my herds could prosper so that then I could prosper. And he looked and he saw a well-watered Jordan Valley. And that's what he chose. And in a worldly sense, from a worldly perspective, this makes a lot of sense. This makes a great amount of sense. Consider, in verse 10 of chapter 12, we're told that this family has gone through famine. Lot has known what it is like to go through famine. And now he, as a as an owner of so many animals, is looking across the land and he sees a well-watered area and that's what he chooses. And from a worldly perspective, we would say that is wise. But there's a catch to this. There's a kicker to this. There's a city so close to where he is moving towards that is wicked. And I contend to you this morning The problem, this is my opinion, the problem was not that Lot moved toward Sodom. The problem was that he moved toward Sodom with a worldly perspective only, with a very short-sighted view. Lot considered, as it were, What would be most profitable materially? What would be most profitable financially? What would be best for me in a short-term run with no consideration for the long-term ramifications of what being in this place would do to him and to his family? The problem was not moving to Sodom. And if that is the problem in our minds, then how can we possibly justify sending goers of Heritage Baptist Church to most, the most unreached places in the world, some of the darkest corners of our world spiritually? The problem is not that Lot, in my opinion, moved towards Sodom, but that he only had a worldly perspective in that move. He played the short game instead of the long game. I often teach to my teens the necessity of thinking long term. 
Don't make short-sighted decisions. Don't only have a worldly perspective with no eternal perspective behind it. I, as a youth pastor, have the privilege at times of counseling some of our older teens uh, regarding areas like, like dating or uh, career choices or colleges to go to. And I find myself time and time and time again coming back to this principle of don't just make short-sighted decisions. Think 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the road, where will this decision you are wanting to make now lead you to spiritually down the road? Think through the course of your life. And so, for example, if a teen's asking me about dating, about dating, you know, should I date this person? Should I date that person? The, the question isn't, well, how do they look physically? Like, like okay, you, you can be physically attracted. You ought to be physically attracted to someone that you are interested in, yes. But you just got to be aware of this, that physical looks decay, deteriorate over time. You, you don't look quite as good at an older age as you do at your youthful teen age. So, so you, you can't make that decision of like, what do they physically look like right now? I, I actually encourage our teens to think, like, consider the spiritual state that you are in and that they are in. Are you at a place right now where if you were to engage in this dating relationship, of course, parents, just as an FYI, with parental permission, if you are at a place where you are spiritually mature, in other words, if you were to enter this dating relationship, are you going to be an individual that will lead this person that you want to date closer to the Lord? Are you going to be a leader in that sense? Or are you going to be an individual that actually will push them to a worldly perspective? Consequently, vice versa, are they, are they in love with Christ? Are they going to pull you towards the, the glories of Jesus or are you going to feel like you're dragging them along the way? Consider a much bigger picture than just the short-sighted, what makes me feel good in the moment or what looks good externally. Uh, consider that the, the realities of career choices. I, I actually counseled just this week an individual who wants to, wants to go to a, a, a new job Wants to, wants to have a new job and with the off chance of making a couple more bucks an hour. And I asked this individual, well, you've got a couple of choices here. You've got this job that may pay a little bit more per hour, a couple bucks an hour, but you've got this job over here that you could apply for, which actually may be better for you spiritually. It's a better environment for you to work in. Consider not making a short-sighted decision just to have a little bit more money in the bank to the potential neglect of maybe a spiritual place that is good for you. I would encourage you who are in this room, as you think of your work schedule, of your time, parents in this room, what would it be to, I mean, maybe you work a couple less hours a week so that you can get home to your kids, so that you can be the primary discipler in your home. Like, like it's a long-term decision. It's a long-game thought process of, of maybe I need to put this thing down in the short run. Maybe I'm just too, 
super consumed with this, it's work or it's sports or whatever the hobby it is that you find yourself often overly consumed with, putting that thing down for a period so that you can do maybe something that's better for you in the long run. And I think we can consider a lot here. A short-sighted perspective of what would make most sense in the moment with no regard to the eternal. No regard with the long term. Lot moved toward Sodom. And if you were to flip with me in a few pages into chapter 19, this is a familiar story. The actual destruction of the cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. But we're told in chapter 19 of the book of Genesis, starting in verse 1, two angels, angels that we are introduced to in chapter 18, two angels come to Sodom. They've just visited Abraham. They are now on their way to Sodom, and they they come to Sodom in the evening. And Lot is sitting in the gate. So previously, Lot was on the outskirts of the city. Now Lot is sitting at the gate, a, a place of prominence, a place where a civic leader would have sat. And when Lot saw these angels, these messengers, these individuals, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. In other words, he's inviting them to his home for the night. And they said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But it says in verse 3, Lot pressed them strongly. No doubt in my mind because he knows the spiritual state of this city. Remember, 2 Peter chapter 2, Lot has seen and heard much as he has sat in the gate of the city of Sodom. He knows the spiritual condition of this city. It would not be best for these two individuals to stay in the town square overnight. It would not be in their best interest. So he presses them strongly to invite them into his home and they relent and they turned aside with him and entered his house and he makes them a meal, a feast, and they ate. And then verse 4 tells us, before they laid down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. The, The word know here is a commonly understood sexual euphemism that we may know them sensually, that we may know them carnally, that we may know them sexually. How quickly, and again, the the city of Sodom is not my study so much this morning, but I just want to make it known or seen here how quickly sin moves in this place. We're told in verse 1 that these angels came in the evening, and then verse 4 before they laid down. So only in between that time was a conversation with Lot, a walk to his house, and a meal. And before they laid down, all the men of this city, all of them, the text says, young and old, surround this house with a a request, not even a request, a strong pressing to bring these two individuals out that we may know them. But I want us to see the response of Lot because, again, he is our study this morning. Lot says to the 
the men of the city, verse 7, he walks out of his home and he says, I beg you, my brothers, talking to the men of the city, do not act so wickedly. This is significant because what we're seeing here is that Lot has an understanding of basic morality. This, their request, their appetite for lust here, their sexual desire here is, as Lot says here, wicked. This is wrong. This is not good. This is not right. He gives us an understanding as readers in 2022 that he had an, an awareness of what is right and what is wrong, which makes what he says next so hard to stomach. Matter of fact, what he says next is why I think for me he is the most complex character in Scripture acknowledging what is wicked in verse 7, then he turns and says, Behold, I've got two girls, two daughters of my own, who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and you do to them as you please. Pause. This is a righteous man, 2 Peter 2 tells us. This is, a, a, this is supposed to be a man of God. And here, I mean, just, just dads in the room of little girls, I, I mean, like, like, what is this? This is, this is God's man in this city, and yet, to the request of all the men in the city of their sexual appetites to be fulfilled, Lot says, this would be wrong, but here's my girls. You can have them. Do to them as you please. Sometimes the pages of Scripture are messy, and this would be one of those moments. This is cowardly. This is horrific. This is the opposite of what being a man looks like. In general, let alone a man of God. Like I, I got two little boys at home. I will die before something happens to them. Like, like that, that's, that's my role. That's my heart for my two boys. That's, someone's got to go through me to get to them. And yet here is this dad the man of God of the city of Sodom and says, as if they're just a piece of meat to be consumed, here's my two girls, do what you want. And the men of the city, they don't take to this offer. They actually, it says, press harder, verse nine. They try to break down the door of the house we're told that the angels reached out and brought Lot into the house. They struck the men with blindness. And in verse 12, it says that they, the, the angels told Lot, or they asked Lot, do you have anyone else here? Any sons-in-laws, any sons, daughters, anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place. And then verse 15, we're told that as morning begins to dawn, the angels urge Lot, saying, get up. Take your wife, take your girls who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. And then we're told, verse 16, Lot lingered. He didn't move. He stood still. 
And, and, and why? This, doesn't, this does not make sense to me. It's, I hope this doesn't make sense to you. Why would the man of God in this moment stand still when he is told to move? Perhaps he was so corroded at this point. He just was in a place of nothingness. I mean, he knows the spiritual condition of the city, right? He, he has been vexed and tormented internally by what he has seen and heard all around him, as 2 Peter chapter 2 lays out for us. He is aware of the promises of God and that God fulfills his promises. This is the nephew of Abraham, after all. He has seen the power of these two angels as they have struck the men of the city with blindness. Like he has a lot of knowledge up here and yet in the moment when it's time to move, in the moment when it's time to leave the city, he does nothing. One commentator said this, that he was slow when he should have been quick. Backward when he should have been forward. Loitering when he should have been hurrying. Cold when he should have been hot. It seems almost too wonderful to be true. A.W. Tozer says this, and I think this appropriate here. One compromise here, another compromise there, and soon enough, the man of God and the man of the world look the same. One compromise, another compromise, another compromise, and soon enough when it's time for the man of God to do that which he is called to do, he looks just like the man of the world. Consider a lot. And what is the fruit? What is the legacy of Lot's life? No impact on his city. No impact. This civic leader, when it was time for him to address the men of the city, they, they mock him, jeer at him. The city had far more impact on him than he had on it. And again, I contend is because Lot had a worldly perspective in going towards the city of Sodom. No impact on the city, minimal at best impact on his family. We, we didn't even look at this, but we're told that in verse 14, Lot went out and said to his son-in-laws who were to marry his daughters, like, let's get out of here. We got to leave this place. The Lord is about to destroy the city. And we're told at the end of verse 14, they thought he was joking. They thought he was, he was telling a, a joke. And I, I don't know why, but I have to think it's potentially because for the longest time, Lot has never been serious about the things of God. And when the time now comes for him to address his future son-in-laws who are betrothed to his daughters, when now the time has come for him to be serious about the things of God, they think it a joke. I wonder, as a youth pastor, there have been times, I've seen this, I, I have not been in this ministry with teens super long, but I have begun to be in it long enough to see trends. And here's some of the trends, one of them that I've seen. I have seen parents apathetic about the things of the Lord. Minimal spiritual investment in the life of their kids at a young age, elementary school, middle school. And then they hit high school, that teen does. And now they begin in to 
have some independence. They can drive, they have jobs, they have friends. And what often happens in that normal teenage cycle is a stage of rebellion or a stage of, of exploration, the things of the world. And now that parent, I've seen this, that parent who has for so much of the child's life been so minimally interested in discipleship of their child, I've seen that, now that parent becomes super helicopter. Like, I am panicked that my kid is making these wrong choices over here, and now I've got to feel like now I've got to, I've got to pull them back in. Noble intention, but do not be shocked if that teen thinks it a joke. Because if you weren't serious about discipleship at a younger age, why be serious about it now? I am not saying, if that is you in this room, that you should not continue to reach out to your teen, pour into your teen. If you, have, if you feel like you have wasted years, it is not too late to disciple your child. But just be aware of this. That is a very real response you may get at the outset. This is a joke. Lot well, had minimal impact on his family. We see that with the future son-in-laws. We... We aren't even looking at his wife this morning, but we're aware that she turns into a pillar of salt in this story, not even to mention what happens at the end of this chapter with his daughters and he. Minimal impact on his family and frankly, a quick exit from the pages of scripture with a checkered history. Like if I were to just read you the story of Genesis chapter 12 to 19 this morning and we just looked at Lot's life and I were to ask you this morning, was Lot a righteous man or an unrighteous man? Not knowing 2 Peter chapter 2, if you were me, you would have said, potentially like I did, that is an unrighteous man. He looked just like the world. A checkered history. How many Christians, I wonder, struggle with the assurance of their salvation because they live this kind of life? So what do we do with this? How do we walk away from this? Turn with me, if you would, the rest of the time that I have left. Ephesians chapter 2. I just want to point out how we avoid this kind of corroded life. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we're told by Paul the state of our spiritual state before God. Prior to Christ, sons of disobedience, walking in the ways of the world. And then verse 4, we are introduced to this, this divine intervention. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Christian, by grace you have been saved. And then we're told in verses 8 and 9, this is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So Christian, you're standing before God. Your position before God is one, not a result of works. It is not by works that you come to the Father. It is by the Son and the Son alone. And yet, there is an in-between. An in-between of when I was saved to when I step into the glories of heaven. And that's where verse 10 hits us. 
It is not by works that you are saved, but it is for good works now that you are to live. Consider what Paul says. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand, listen, that we Christians should walk in them. You're not saved by good works, but you're saved for good works now. What does this mean for us? As we consider the life of Lot, as we consider what Paul writes here, what, what this, I think, could mean for us is that maybe, maybe we just need to be serious about fighting sin. And, and what I don't mean by fighting sin is fighting the cultural war against sin, although I think we should have a voice in that. What I mean by that is an individual, introspective look at myself and saying, where am I right now? Where am I sinning? Where am I struggling? Where am I wrestling? Like temptation is not a sin, but I just want to remind you, temptation is not a good place to be in either. Where is my battle right now? And actively warring against my own personal sin, or or maybe it's potentially, maybe, I mean, that's a good work to do is warring against your own sin, or maybe someone has sinned against you, someone has transgressed you, someone has wronged you. Maybe, Maybe the thing that you need to do because you find yourself in a place of bitterness, maybe the best thing for you to do is to forgive and to let that go. We don't loiter in our own sin, but we also don't want to loiter in a place of bitterness and unforgiveness either. Or, or maybe, maybe we just consider Lot this morning in this way. It's probably many of us who would say, I, I feel like I've got a good grasp on putting off these things. But maybe we just need to take that next step of obedience and put on the next thing that God has called us to do. Lot lived in a city that was decaying spiritually. And here's the man of God that was a dimless light, a flavorless salt. Heritage Baptist Church, this world is in a downward decline spiritually. Yet for this moment, at this time, God has us here. In the here and the now. Maybe some of us need to go to some of these cities some of these hard-to-reach places, the, the Seattle, Washingtons, the Boston, Massachusetts, the Los Angeles, Californias, the, the, the most unreached places of this country, the most unreached places of our world, maybe that's a step that we need to take. But maybe it's just frankly this. Maybe it's just taking that next step that's really, really hard to take right where you're at in Lynchburg, Virginia. We have been called two and four good works, saved for that purpose. I do not want us, I do not want my life to be characterized as Lot's life was. Got to heaven, but no impact in between. Let us consider the life of Lot and look into the mirror and say, what is the next step for me? If you would, let me pray and I'll turn it to the team behind me. Father, again, there are many characters in the Bible We can learn lessons from quicker than others. A complicated character Lot is. And yet I'm also encouraged by this reality. Lot was complex. And if I'm quite honest, Lord, I find myself to be complex too. I find myself at times to be faithless. I find myself at times to be loitering and lingering, apathetic and still when I should be moving. 
I find in myself at times when I see things around me not having the courage and the boldness in your name to speak up out of love. And I suspect as many that are in this room, there are also those internal things for them as well. Jesus, thank you for being faithful when we are often faithless. May we consider this character this morning, consider you, Jesus, and the calling that you have called us to and saved us into, the works that you have prepared, Lord, for us to do, and may we take a next step of obedience in doing so. And look so much more like Christ in the process. Lord, I lift all these things up to you, knowing this is your heart for us as your people. We ask this in your name. Amen.